Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. In 2022, the Research Centre began working with Palgrave Macmillan on the Iris Murdoch Today series. And I'm really pleased that the fourth book in the series, Iris Murdoch's Practical Metaphysics, A Guide to Her Early Writings, has just been published. And today I'm joined by its author, Leslie Jameson. Hello, Leslie. Hi there. Thanks for coming on again. Um, and uh, Leslie's going to discuss Murdoch's early thoughts and what Murdoch was trying to achieve in the early part of her career. Leslie is no stranger to the podcast, having been on the Iris Murdoch and Politics podcast. Um, and you can listen back to that below. Leslie is a researcher at the Centre for Ethics, a study in human value at the University of Pardubice in the Czech Republic, um, a research centre that has a number of researchers working on or with Murdoch's ideas. And she was formerly at Queen's University, Ontario in Canada. So, Leslie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for coming on to talking about the book. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on publishing the book. Um, it's a, a fascinating way into thinking about uh, Murdoch's metaphysics and indeed not just the philosophy either, but kind of different aspects of her life at that particular point in time in the 1950s. To start, could you tell us a little bit about your own way into Murdoch's writings and why you chose to focus on this particular moment in her life? I mean, like many people, I think I stumbled into Iris Murdoch's philosophy by being passed a paper at one point during my dissertation research. I'd previously been someone who was working on the moral philosophy or writings of John McDowell. Mm -hmm. uh, I was also in persons like Cora Diamond. And Murdoch kept sort of showing up as somebody who is <clears throat> cited as an influence of these sorts of people and sometimes referenced fairly heavily in papers, but didn't seem to be somebody who is necessarily spoken about as widely in um, analytic moral philosophy. So encountering her work was sort of encountering the voice of somebody who stood dramatically apart from the styles of writing that I'd become used to as somebody who had been studying moral mm -hmm. philosophy in the analytic tradition. And I think like a turning point moment for me was a reading group where a number of us at Queens during my doctoral studies had gotten together to talk about, I think it was the sovereignty of good over other concepts. And a sort of senior person at the table at a certain point interjected into the conversation to say, you know, these are very fine things that this Murdoch woman is saying, uh, very interesting observations very persuasively articulated, but where are the arguments? Mm. And this brain of where are the arguments became repeated again and again throughout the discussion, which I admit I was a little bit irritated by at the time, but it really got me to thinking that there is something very distinctive about how Murdoch approaches philosophical topics that I hadn't really taken seriously until that moment. I too had been sort of swept up in the persuasiveness of what she had to say. But when I came to think about it, one, what was I being persuaded to think? Mm -hmm. Two, why was this so different from what I was used to in the moral philosophy writings that I'd been reading up to that point? So I think that's kind of where the seed is planted for me of wanting to focus on Murdoch from this perspective of methodology, rather than sort of treating her as um, a purveyor of particular kinds of positions. Sure. And I suppose McDowell and Diamond would have been fairly well known. Um, obviously, Diamond's still with us and, and, and still working furiously. Was Murdoch particularly well known or is she well known in Canada as a philosopher? Is she taught in, in universities or was it 
was approaching her work for the first time something quite new and refreshing? I would go with the new and refreshing side of that equation. Yeah. Um, I think it's changing at this point. Like we've seen a shift in the last 20 years of Murdoch being taken much more seriously than she had previously been. And we're seeing, you know, a number of well-respected analytic philosophers taking inspiration from her work very openly. But this is, I think, still quite a new development. So even six, seven years ago, when I was starting into my sort of interest in Murdoch, this was an idiosyncratic thing to be interested in at my university. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that, yeah, I've played some role in shifting that at, at least Queens. Sure. And I think other universities are also seeing a shift in Murdoch being more regularly included in undergrad syllabi, which is really wonderful to see. And it's again, part of this kind of bigger movement in philosophy right now to try to um, pay better tribute to the legacy of women in the history of philosophy. Sure. So projects like the In Parenthesis Project headed by um, Rachel Wiseman and Claire McCool, I think, is a great example of this kind of work that's being done. Um, yeah, push back against the tendency yeah. to forget about women in the history of philosophy. Well, that's really pleasing to hear that it's, you know, a, a worldwide movement, um, or at least in the Anglophone, um, Anglophone sphere, that that's, that's occurring. Why then did you go for the early materials? Because clearly, I think there's a good deal that's written on the sovereignty of goods, or at least people's kind of perceptions and understandings of the sovereignty of good, whether that's correct or not. So obviously, there are varying interpretations of that. And that of that sort of period of the, the, the uh, mid to late 60s into the 70s seems to be the one that people go for the most. Um, there's obviously a lot of work to be done towards the latter end of the career, certainly with Metaphysics, the Guides to Morals, and also um, work on Heidegger. But you chose to focus very much on the early stuff, uh, the early the early essays from the primarily 1950s. What was it about that period um, that kind of attracted you, I suppose? I mean, I guess just the sense that those papers hadn't really been looked at uh, for their own sake as much as I think they yield to. So the first two papers that I think kind of come in the period that I look at in the book, Thinking in Language and Nostalgia for the Particular, are not papers that we really see discussed in their own or their own right very often in mm. literature about Murdoch. So that was kind of one motivation that I had is I find Murdoch's responses to behaviors in the philosophy of mind interesting in their own right. And then as I began to look at the works from this period sort of all together, um, yeah, I had the thought that like reading them as if they all sort of were written at the same time as other writings for Murdoch's career, be they, you know, things she wrote in the 60s in the case of the sovereignty of good, or, you know, the Gifford lectures that then became Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, is kind of a bizarre thing to do because, you know, this is a 40-year period. Yeah. So might there be discontinuities in her thought that we can maybe notice if we take a period of her thinking in isolation more? Or at least can we take what she wrote then more seriously and find, you know, insights and ways of thinking that otherwise we might overlook if we're only reading them as sort of like a prelude to or continuous with the sorts of ideas that we begin to see when she's engaging more openly with Platonism, say, in Sovereignty of Good. So I had this yeah, sense that there might be something that would be lost if we only look at these works as if they were kind of, you know, leading up to something that was more mature and more developed with sure. the sort of Platonist writings rather than interesting in their own right. 
to almost give us a different experience of of who Murdoch was and what she was thinking at that particular point in time. And as you say, the the ideas and inspirations that perhaps wane as she goes into the 1960s and and that kind of the the development of the mind as we, we go through this period. I think tracing back to the podcast that I did with uh, Gary Browning and Vic Seidler, we were discussing Murdoch's political views. Yeah. And I think that's a dimension where we see that there are changes to be discerned in who Murdoch was as a person from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s onward. Um, There's not maybe enough there for us to kind of trace fine-grained elements of her political thought um, as much as maybe scholars would like, those of us who are hungry to kind of see these specificities. But when we look at Murdoch in the 30s, she's, you know, hoping for a world in which the Soviet state engulfs all of mankind. Mm. She, you know, pulls back from that in the 1940s, as many leftists did. The 1950s, I think we see her in a very specific period in her political life where she's both concerned about a specific orthodox vision of Marxist socialism and is extremely wary of a sort of Soviet project. But she's still, it seems, at least in her writings, especially in a house of theory, committed to some kind of democratic socialism. But then even further down the road in her career, we see her no longer supporting the Labour Party. We see her endorsing Margaret Thatcher. So there are some pretty radical shifts that take place. And I think also, if we think about her own work in relation to these sorts of practical concerns, then maybe it gives us some insight into why like certain shifts in her focus as a philosopher um, mm. can be discerned as we move forward in her career. So I thought there'd be something worthwhile about thinking about Murdoch in this period where she still is somebody who is connected with the new left or the burgeoning new left in the UK at the time, who's, you know, distancing herself from a certain vision of socialist Marx or, um, communism, but nonetheless sees herself um, allied with the socialist movement in Great Britain. Sure. And so there, are there, might... ways, there are different Sorry. ways into thinking about that, aren't there? Um, as you say, the you, you in in the book, you've got different kind of aspects of her early thoughts and how you consider it. And the way you kind of set it up is is interesting to me because you actually talk about the the contemporary reading of Murdoch now, looking back at her early work, and there, you sort of put um, sort of suggest that there are particular camps that people fall into when they're reading early Murdoch. Um, for some, you said you say that they, you might think that uh, Murdoch's a little bit obscure. Um, you say they say that Murdoch's obscure, or that there's it's quite difficult to find a thread or an argument, as you've suggested earlier. Um, what's your kind of take on those kind of um, arguments of approaching Murdoch in the um, in in the nineteen fifties? Well, I think if there are contemporary debates you know, where we see something that Murdoch says is inspiring us to approach questions in a new light, like, hooray for that, I'd want to say. But I think if we only focus on wanting to sort of extract Murdoch out from her historical context in order to sort of put her in conversation with contemporary conversations, in conversation with conversations, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to miss maybe who she was actually responding to and what she was animated by when she was writing what she actually wrote during those periods. So we can kind of become sort of quote extractors where, oh, here's an interesting way of putting things. I can see how looking at things in this light can 
maybe make us think differently about debates about moral realism or particularism or um, moral perception, say, which I think by all means, Murdoch can be a, a source of great insight um, and maybe lead us to think about questions in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Mm. But I think it's important to recognize that those maybe weren't the conversations that she was actually taking part in when she was saying the things that then get quoted. So I wanted to sort of read her more in the context of what she was responding to, both in terms of methodological trends in philosophy and in terms of substantive views, and also to see her as part of this wider cultural conversation, because she's somebody who thinks that philosophy is both a mirror and a guide to its age. So this isn't just sort of, you know, rarefied ideas being spouted by intellectuals in the ivory tower. I mean, sometimes maybe it is, but... Well, she, and she is dealing with such a vast array of people, even at this stage, isn't she? Gross array of thinkers, maybe not as much, perhaps, as she she will do later in the 1980s. But at this point in time, I mean, your book deals clearly with, with such, you can't really escape that kind of um, period in, of, of existentialist thought in, in, in her work, naturally. Uh, but also you talk, um, you know, there's quite a lot of discussion of um, Kantian thought in here. Um, some Wittgenstein, but also the analytic philosophers of her own period, particularly A.J. Eyre and Gilbert Ryle. Um, this makes her quite a different thinker than a different philosopher than perhaps some of her contemporaries. You mean in terms of the sort of diversity of people she was responding yeah, to? Yeah, the diversity of people that she was responding to, but also, I guess, the kinds of material that she was writing, perhaps. And maybe that kind of argument against, not maybe not against mother, but questions about her obscurity or holding on to a thread of argument is because she is such a diverse thinker at this point in time that it's difficult perhaps for those of us reading her now to try and figure out exactly what's going on I think this is where your book really helps because there's you tease out these kind of um, the influences but also as you say her engagements and her line of thought as, as she progresses through this period. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to sort of see these connections between trends in philosophy that she's responding very directly to. So, you know, she's responding to papers like the logic of appreciation by Stuart Hampshire, but then also tracing this to the influence of Kantian aesthetics, but also seeing this as sort of an expression of a very post-war way of looking at what a human being is and what the nature of freedom is, that mm -hmm. she thought of as not merely sort of the purview of philosophers, but as the sort of thing that infected the culture much more widely. So she has this almost sociological way of thinking about philosophers as not merely people, you know, espousing and defending particular lines of argument and thought, but also as reflecting and crystallizing ideas that are sort of there more widely in the culture and that are doing things like shape the nature of post-war literature, for instance. So she thinks that the sorts of ideas that are being discussed by philosophers have very practical ramifications for the kinds of cultural works that are being produced. So I think that perspective on philosophy makes it stranger, I think, to approach her as just somebody who's, um, you know, trading in the sorts of arguments we're used to seeing. And as a result, the way that we have to think about what she's doing and why and how has to shift accordingly. Sure. Yeah, and she is going against the grain, isn't she, quite often, um, not just the kind of the prevailing culture in Oxford, but also um, what other members of the quartet were doing, perhaps, or she's engaging in some ways, but not in others. 
I was thinking what what came through most strongly in in reading your book um, since it's been published is just how different Murdoch was from virtually everybody else at Oxford at the particular point in time, not just the analytical thinkers like Ayer and Ryle and, and Hampshire, but also other members of the quartet as well. She really does strike out on her own path at this point in time, doesn't she, post-45? Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily as entrenched in the philosophies of Midgley, Anscombe or Foot, but I think in the case of Anscombe, maybe we would see Murdoch sort of balking at the kind of naturalism that she seemed to be gravitating towards. Um, while Murdoch is happy to sort of recognize that a certain naturalistic way of thinking about the human being and their place in nature is a relevant alternative to the sorts of um, moral outlook that are, I think she thinks maybe codified and crystallized by somebody like R.M. Hare. Yeah. So a prescriptivist way of thinking about the moral life where, you know, there are empirical facts that they're in the world, they are morally neutral, and it is I, the moral decision maker, who must be responsible, non-hypocritical, um, and principled in how I orient myself towards those facts in particular in my life by choosing and adopting consistent principles for myself. Um, that's one way of thinking about the moral life, but it's, I think she argues, not the only relevant alternative. But while she sort of sketches this more naturalistic picture that we might think Anscombe would fall maybe under in essays like Metaphysics and Ethics, I'm not sure that we should read that as Murdoch necessarily endorsing that picture so much as saying there are ways of differing from one another that are not well captured if all we're thinking about are decision-making and principles. So the thing that distinguishes someone like Anscombe from someone like Hare is not a choice. Sure. It's a way of seeing the world much more widely. So. I think in sketching out a more naturalistic way of thinking about the moral life, she's not necessarily saying this is how we should think of things so much as we should recognize that this is a way of thinking of things. This is a kind of vision. And this is the sort of way that we do differ from one another morally in ways that we don't have the conceptual tools to make sense of if we only um, adopt the frameworks that we receive from analytic moral philosophy of the kind of sword on offer at Oxford and abroad at that point in history. Sure. So do you think she is then kind of making a radical break, not just with her contemporaries, but also the um say the, the philosophy of the, the early 20th century and, and harking back to a different thought. I know obviously she's going to move towards Platonism a little bit later on. Or do you think that she is kind of reinvigorating a form of philosophy that we've seen seen in the 19th century? One of the things I tried to sort of get through in the first chapters of my book is the way in which we can see Murdoch as both discontinuous with a certain tradition that was developing and gaining speed, especially at Oxford in the sort of 1930s and 40s. So I think Gilbert Ryle is our sort of perfect exemplar of this kind of clarificatory philosophy. Uh, he was writing the 1930s before World War II, but after that period, there was a sort of changing of the guard moment where a lot of the sort of um, heterogeneity of pre-World War II Oxford philosophy dissipated to a tremendous extent, not least because Ryle sort of willed it into being. Yeah. <laughs> or he's, he's kind of a great activist in the shaping of post-war philosophy in, in Oxford and beyond, I guess. He was uh, the Wayne Fleet chair of metaphysics. I'm not an... I'm from North America. I don't know what these things are, but yeah, <laughs> professor of metaphysics. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So he took that chair over very symbolically from R.G. Collingwood, who had been this much more kind of metaphysically open uh, philosopher who was very interested in the connections between philosophy and literature. So this is a very different sort of person than someone like Gilbert Ryle, who then goes on to shape the, the face of post-war philosophy, both in his metaphysics chair and as the editor of Mind, and as generally a sort of tastemaker who is ushering, you know, young men trained in his tradition into positions throughout the country and abroad. Sure. Yeah, that kind of uh, professional, um, almost discipleship that he uh, he formed around him. Yeah, I think it's um, covered very nicely in um, Nickel Christian's um, newish book that's um, that we obviously had Nickel on the podcast uh, fairly recently talking about that. But um, in your book, you tackle so much that um, I, I, not being a, a proper philosopher, um, as people probably listening to the podcast know, um, you tackle so many kind of aspects of her philosophy that I'd kind of knew of, but didn't perhaps get a, uh, a, a the depth of detail that um, that you go into you tackle her ambivalence to behaviorism don't you questions about literature and philosophy which i'm much more comfortable with um ethics socialism moral philosophy you know the, the what murdoch was kind of ranging across was very broad wasn't it at this point in time but of course she's also writing book reviews and on the other sort of side of perhaps the other side of her professional life she's writing poetry um and of course the early novels as well um, from kind of 53 onwards do you get a sense that Murdoch's kind of spread of material forms maybe not a cohesive whole but you can see the kind of connections between these different forms of writing and thinking well I thought it's interesting to recognize that you know in our contemporary moment some people will write for you know popular audiences it's the sort of thing that's good to put on a resume anyway, that you do quote unquote public philosophy here and there. Yeah. But during this period, it's extremely common for people to um, do radio shows, which I guess still has some life with, um, what's that called? There's a little bit on BBC Radio 3. You get obviously yeah. um, Radio 4s in our time. Um, but yeah, not yeah, in our time zone, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, but you don't get like the uh, the third program, which is of course now BBC Radio Three. You don't get as much of the li- the the life of the mind or the kind that kind of intellectual discussion that was just um, so so common. Obviously, Murdoch was involved, um, Midgley as well um, to a certain extent. But also, of course, um, these analytical um, these analytical philosophers that we've mentioned there, Ryle, Hare, Hampshire. You could find them all on the airwaves. And then later on, of course, on TV as we go into the seventies and eighties, and and now that just just isn't the case, is it? Um, so yeah, of watching that uh, Brian McGee, yeah, you know, the ideas, men of ideas, ideas. <laughs> yeah, of course, men of ideas, where yeah. Murdoch is an honorary man at one point. Yes, and that quote, that that's that idea of the, about the honorary man, um, <laughs> the, the woman is an honorary man, whether it be Murdoch in in that book or. Anscombe in the Wittgenstein circle. Um, I think it's very problematic. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's some something from, I think that's what's attractive to me about Murdoch's thought at this point, uh, throughout her life, but particularly at this point in time, is that she's doing so many different things and yet you can find connections between them. Um, certainly, I think, and I think your, your book talks about this quite well, is this element of the the, the deep engagement with, um, with behaviourism and thinking about um that kind the, the the problematic nature of philosophy at this particular point in time could you say a little bit about that 
Yeah, I mean, philosophical behaviorism, I think she's tracing to Gilbert Ryle's the concept of mind. And also, I think elements of this come through, maybe not in the truest readings of Wittgenstein, but at least in how Wittgenstein was largely taken up during this period, which I always find kind of a, a funny walk, um, tightrope to walk, not yeah. being a Wittgenstein scholar myself, to not commit myself to saying Wittgenstein's a behaviorist or something of a sort. But I think she was definitely worried about the way in which philosophies of this kind, by, I think, rightly noticing the ways in which we can identify others' mental states on the basis of their public behavior without thinking that this is merely evidence that's indirect and only points towards something inaccessible, interior, private, in principle. There's something very powerful in what they've accomplished by helping us to see the logic of mental concepts. But in so doing, I think she worried that figures, especially like Ryle, pointed towards the inner life having interest in its own right when it doesn't manifest in public behavior. Certain discussions of thinking and the experience of poetry. Yeah. I think she's trying to highlight the ways in which we can have these experiences that are private, if not in principle, at least in practice, until I've come to a point where I can articulate them. And that's actually pretty darn hard to do. So there's some truth in the idea that language is a coarse net through which our thought slips, which is a something she describes as a paradoxical thought but nonetheless thinks there's some truth in. And I think she worried that the behaviorists weren't really doing justice to the truth in that idea, that there is something to attend to within ourselves, that it can be challenging to do justice to, for instance, our impression of a John Clare poem like Summer Images, which she quotes a passage from in Thinking in Language, mm. which is one of her earliest papers. Um, and that we can be held to standards of correctness in how well we actually live up to that feat. Where have I been imaginative, <clears throat> sorry, imaginative enough in finding ways to express myself in order to sort of capture the experience that I've had of this poem? Or, you know, is my language contingently a course not at the moment? So there's, I think, a difference between claiming that our inner life events are something that are in principle, you know, beyond what could be expressed and communicated to others, and recognizing that, you know, while I can in principle do this, it might be quite a challenge, and I often might fall short of the task of doing so. So self-understanding in these realms is something that we shouldn't veer too far to the side of thinking that um, all there is to understanding myself is to reflect on my patterns of behavior. Mm. There's going to be a lot of mushy, murky stuff on the inside that still needs to be paid attention to sometimes. And we can do justice that thought without going too far in a sort of Cartesian direction where I'm in direct, immediate contact with that mushy inner stuff. So she's, I think, trying to sort of thread a a fine line between these two extremes and she uses imagery of her own to do so yes so yeah introduces these fabulous metaphors of um the inner life event as a persian rug so it's not as if i don't see it when i look at it initially but it yields to a deeper sort of engagement where i can discern more and see more of the thing the more i attend to it and do you think then that there's a kind of a a line of development we can trace from that kind of particular instance through to vision and choice and morality and then late and then into 
later essays that we'll, 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 we will read in the 1960s? Well, I think a common thread tends to be that she's attempting to give us ways of thinking about uh, forms of reality in a context where those forms of reality were not really acknowledged by dominant strains of philosophy. So the behaviorists were not keen on the reality of the inner life event uh, in a similar way that we might think that moral philosophers of the period were not keen on moral realities. And in the same way that she worried that existentialist philosophers and others were not keen on the reality or the substance of the human individual. So there are various forms of reality that she worried that the philosophers of the period that she was sort of responding to were not giving us the conceptual tools to do justice to. And yet there are practices that we engage in, or maybe we should engage in, uh, that are involved in trying to bring those realities into view. And if we don't have a conceptual repertoire for making sense of what we're doing when we do that sort of thing, then there's a kind of disorientation that I think she worries was taking place during those periods. And again, this isn't a merely intellectual affair that she's worried about. She thinks that this kind of disorientation is at play in trends in post-war literature, for example. Sure. So how people write novels in terms of how they represent character. Well, if you don't have an idea of what a human being is such that you have a sense of what it would be to be realistic about human beings, then what sorts of persons are going to appear on your pages? And therefore, we need to develop or reconfigure our vocabulary of attention our and our, our idea of con conceptualization of these 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 elements that will find its find their ways into uh, um, later imagine uh, later images in the philosophy, but also into the novels as well. Um, so, what is it then about how she engages with the what we might call um, the political sphere? As we think about the the way in which um, either she's very very keen on existentialism for a, a short period of time, but equally um, her her movement from uh, Marxism through to socialism, and you've you've talked about obviously she moves in towards some more towards the right um, in the late seventies and into the eighties. Do you see a kind of a connection then between the inner the inner life of thought and the kind of the experiential if you like of what the the time in which she's living through and that actually both the feet they're feeding her kind of political thinking but also her personal action well, i think in her political thinking again she's i was describe her as trying to walk a tightrope which i mean maybe i need more metaphors for somebody who strikes a third way between two extremes Scylla and charybdis i guess is the one so in her political thinking, I think there's similarly a, a worry that she has about uh, political visions that emphasize the determinacy of the kind of reality that we're sunk within too much. Yeah. Just to say she's worried about a kind of overly scientific socialism of the sort that maybe presents human beings as economically determined. And, you know, our value as individuals is a function of how we feature into, say, the inevitable inevitable movement of history towards the great Soviet world state or whatever. Um, so there's that sort of way of thinking about the individual in relation to uh, value, let's say. Yeah. But then on the other side, there's this overly empirical conception of the person in relation to a world of facts where 
you know, what it would be to sort of come together around a political ideal would probably look like, you know, coming to determine that we all care equally about maximizing happiness or something like that, or uh, furthering the ends of welfare to as many people as possible within a state by adopting the sorts of policies that would be key to do so. So again, this is a very sort of scientific vision of what it is to be a political thinker. Mm. So we all agree on the kinds of principles we share. We can all look at the facts and agree on those. And then the rest is going to be sort of strategy. So this is the sort of thing that she saw a lot of contemporary socialists doing in their work, which is, I think she thought, missing out on something important that uh, political theory should be doing, which is articulating the sorts of values that can orient us towards the world and help us to understand the sort of facts of our lives as they are. There's more of a sort of hermeneutic or interpretive role that theorists can play by speaking in terms of these robust conceptions of life as it looks when it goes well and life as it looks when it does not go well, speaking in terms of exploitation and alienation, which are these sort of rich value concepts. So if we don't think that reality be, can be disclosed by using these sorts of rich evaluative concepts, then we're missing, we're losing sight of an important kind of area of activity that uh, I think she thought that socialist thinkers should be engaging in, which is the sort of communication of a moral vision that can then inspire and guide action. So a house of theory is where we see the sorts of discussions she's having about moral philosophy and the shortcomings of figures like R.M. Hare yeah. actually coming to bear on these more rich political questions. So again, we're seeing that she's not merely sort of shadow boxing with academia. She's engaged in an attempt to articulate a kind of reality that if we lose sight of, then we can't make sense of the sort of um, socialist theoretical practice that she thought that the new left should be engaging in. Obviously, it took you, you know, a number of years to kind of corral all this material together. When you were undertaking the research for the book, was there anything that, you know, when you got deeply invested in these uh, essays that, that that surprised you about Murdoch that you um, that that brought you up short in a sense? You thought thought, well, actually, I didn't quite see that, or maybe um, you you managed to make connections that you didn't see it um, early on. I mean, from a personal perspective, I had a really hard time in thinking of freedom as love or love as freedom mm. or like the sorts of connection she draws between freedom, love and realism. I think it might have been maybe immaturity on my part as well, where there's something kind of icky about talking about love, mm. revealing myself as a rather waspy person or something. But it's um, what she means by love, isn't it? That's the that's the thing when you actually kind of start to I mean it, I think it's probably one of the most discussed or perhaps one of the most um confusing aspects of Murdoch's thought is the actual trying to unpick what she actually means by love um obviously the philosophy is one thing the, the fiction is quite another but the actual the kind of the philosophical approach to to love is probably more more papers on love and attention in, in Murdoch's philosophy than there are of anything else right oh certainly yeah I mean, I think it's really challenging because, I mean, we ourselves are reading with certain kinds of prejudices as people embroiled in the sorts of conversations we are as philosophers or whatever sort of field we're coming from. Um, so I think 
for many to hear love connected with realism, it's very easy to hear that as immediately connected to the sorts of moral realism that are debated in moral philosophy today. So I think our ear can kind of lead us astray in how we hear what she's writing about. But then when you think about like, what is it to be realistic? I think like an important shift happened for me where I realized sometimes like an immature or yeah, maybe not altogether healthy sort of love, I tend to be unrealistic about another person. Mm. And I think the fact that she highlights things like um, the fact that we have histories, that we have individual ways of seeing the world that are valuable in their own right and not always the sort of thing that we need to be moralistic and judgmental about um, is a way of looking at other people in a realistic way where I'm not expecting you to be you know, somebody who can tear yourself away from your historical formation and make choices out of the blue that completely, you know, make a rupture with everything that's come before in your life, that would be an unrealistic thing to expect of a person or a sort of fantasy that we might have of another person. Mm. It also imposes a kind of a fantasy of responsibility where I don't have to have the same sort of sympathy for somebody for being the product of a history that has formed them into the person that they are. And Murdoch, of course, is somebody who wants to de-emphasize the extent to which we're, I mean, it's monarchs of all we survey, rational yeah. decision makers, freely chucking our wills about hither and thither, like these sorts of things that she writes over and over again in her works. Absolutely. Um, and we can see that right the way through, can't we, to even to the, to the last, uh, philosophy writings that she she produces in the 90s what do you think thinking about uh, thinking about um you know the great corpus of works that have been written about murdoch in this period particularly about in, in the in the philosophy what do you think is the most neglected area of discussion in relationship to the the 40s and 50s i think the philosophy of mind has been the most neglected yeah i mean i think behaviors in the philosophy of mind is itself maybe not the trendiest topic in philosophy of mind which is much more focused on I guess AI language models these sorts of topics now um brains people are talking about brains in the philosophy of mind yeah so there's maybe a sense in which behaviorism is outmoded so a response to behaviorism is also going to look maybe not particularly interesting but maybe I disagree that behaviorism is that uninteresting I think <laughs> Is that where the, where the more the the new interesting work on Murdoch's going to be done? Do you think? <laughs> I mean, I've got a fabulous paper about uh, John Wisdom, Gilbert Ryle, and Iris Murdoch out in the European Journal of Philosophy. <laughs> Excellent. We shall put a link to that in the in the podcast so people can have a look at it. Which is going to you know sail a thousand ships, I'm sure. Let's hope. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this actually. Um, What's going to grow out of the book? Obviously, the, the book is out. It's going to get some fantastic reviews and publicity, no doubt. But is are you going to go on and do more work on Murdoch, going out of the book, taking a new angle? What's the next step for you moving on from this book? So like I said, the first thing I did after I finished the manuscript is write this paper about John Wisdom, where I'd gotten so sort of dug into the sort of 40s and 50s period in philosophy, where I was reading these other people who I felt like had sort of escaped popular notice. So John Wisdom had been Murdoch's tutor at Cambridge or a supervisor, whatever sort of role one has as a 
postdoc person at Newnham College in 1947. Yeah. Um, and I thought there were kind of fascinating kinships between their work, his response to Gilbert Ryle, and then her response to behaviorism in the first two papers in the 1950s. So part of me wants to kind of dig more into these sorts of, you know, lesser known figures like John Wisdom. Um, I know Dorothy Emmett, somebody who's now being sort of discussed more by Larry Blum and Peter West, uh, Susan Stebbing, somebody else who I think would be worth thinking about also in relation to Murdoch. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of want to go backwards to some of the people I got to sort of um, touch the surface on in the research and writing I did for this book, but I think there's a lot more that could be done. Sure. Yeah. You're not tempted to do the uh, a, a guide to her middle period writings then? Or do you think that's already <laughs> been well covered? Well, I think the 70s stuff in particular could be... Like, again, there's the sort of papers that uh, appear in Existentialism and Mystics, where instead of the things she sort of published as books, like we have, you know, The Sovereignty of Good and Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, like the sorts of things that I focused on in my book were for a long time really hard to pull together because they hadn't really been collated in one place. And I think this a lot of the essays from the 60s and 70s might also yield to this kind of focus. Or I think it'd be interesting to look at maybe art as mirror of nature, existentialism as six actual paper. Yeah. Or I'm sort of interested again because I have a sort of political fascination with Murdoch's trajectory in life to maybe think about the way that she shifted from her more sort of socialist concerns in the late 50s in the House of Theory. So I think in the 70s, she's much more concerned with humanitarian crises. Yeah. This seems to be a theme that recurs more and more, like human suffering, the visibility of it on television. Yeah, particularly um, around Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the truth in utilitarian outlooks on the world when it comes to recognizing the sort of massive human suffering in developing countries and so forth. So I think that's kind of an interesting shift in her thought that it would be... I think worth thinking about in connection with shifts in her political or her uh, philosophical focus. Hmm. But Murdoch is going to remain a, a a major part of your academic life going forward. Oh yeah, I mean she's in the blood. It's hard to get rid of her. Yeah, yeah, I know how that feels. Uh, <laughs> good. So thank you for, for for talking us for talking us through that, uh, Leslie. It's been. A fascinating discussion obviously the um the book is available um now from in the iris Murdoch today series with palgrave before we finish though could you recommend um an essay by murdoch that you think that we ought to reread in the light of your book or, or maybe even an essay that after that you kind of re, you know reconsidered after you know spending months kind of um pulling it apart and thinking about it in relationship to to, to murdoch's latest development what would be a key essay that you think we all ought to read and is perhaps undervalued? I think nostalgia for the particular is probably the deepest cut. Yeah. So I spend a fair bit of time talking about that essay in particular as one where she develops, like, I think very interesting metaphors to help us make sense of the inner life. And I think is an essay that I very rarely see talked about. So I hope readers of the book will be able to return to nostalgia for the particular with a new appreciation. 
that's great thank you yeah um i have read it and i think i may even have written about it at one point but not to any great effect perhaps or and certainly not to any great length so that's certainly one that i will need to uh to go back to all the essays that um, we've discussed on this podcast are available in the um edited collection um existentials and mystics which came out with penguin in 1997 and you can find them there um so leslie thank you so much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure to to talk to you today about the new book iris murdoch's practical metaphysics a guide to her early writings there is a link to uh leslie's profile leslie's new book and indeed um, there'll be a link to leslie's most recent article on medical wisdom uh coming shortly and um yeah good luck for um the uh, the, the new work we shall uh, keep and keep a, an eye out and uh, and hope that um we see some uh, more published material in the near future leslie it's been a real pleasure thank you for coming on thanks for having me it's um it's been um, a lot of fun so my thanks to leslie jameson and my thanks to you all for listening